Happy 2020 from First Bite and SpeechTherapyPD.com. We wanted to announce that to kick off 2020 for the first time ever, we will be issuing out and wait for it, drum roll, dun, 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 an all new PodCore subscription. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools, to adults, to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's topic falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories, and I'm stoked because Aaron and I are covering all things ASHA 2019. Okay, yeah, I get it. We're a little bit behind. I mean, ASHA was in November, but let's be realistic. If you've ever been to an ASHA convention, you know how mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausted and simultaneously rejuvenated you feel once it's over with. So you need a bit of a time to recover. But then as soon as ASHA wraps, like the next week's Thanksgiving, and then it's Christmas or Hanukkah, and then there's the new year. So basically, unofficially, the ASHA convention is the start of the expanding waistline that doesn't really end until at least the first week of January when you try really, really hard to put it all back together. Uh, so hence, Aaron and I are covering it now. Huzzah! Happy New Year, folks! And to our sweet Aaron, how you doing, lady? I'm tired, but we're here. <laughs> is it is it still raining up in Virginia, or has that passed out, passed over? No, it's it's sunny and beautiful, but oh, cold. Nice. It, yeah, we my Jane started blooming my Jane magnolias, and which is like the, y'all folks, if you don't have a Jane, do the Google. Um, they only bloom like once a year, and they're glorious. And then it froze, and I'm like, if this freeze kills my my blooms, Ooh, but that's. That's our biggest complaint. Oh, and Goose and Bear got matching Chewbacca costumes. Y'all, the Target has matching Chewbacca onesie PJs for little boys. This is utterly delightful 2020 newsflash. Enjoy. <laughs> oh, that's my that's my that's my nerdy moment of the episode. I'm not allowed to be nerdy again. Okay. So then let's roll into our top takeaways. Um 
let's start let's start where most of us end up getting lost in. Uh, so with like 14,000 folks in attendance, it can be really overwhelming to walk through the exhibit hall. But that's where we all end up like aimlessly, mindlessly walking around. So what were some of your concerns and some of your highlights for adding evidence-based practice to your clinical skill set that you saw there at the convention? It's a good question. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Uh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I know because it's so freaking overwhelming. Okay. Well, then let me start with... Um, Okay, so one of my favorite things was um, I loved seeing um, the book signings. I don't remember, I don't, and maybe I just wasn't in there at some of the other previous conventions at the right time, but they had um, Melanie Hudson, who's been on in the past, um, uh, doing a signing of her new professional issues book. They had uh, Melanie Potok, all the Melanies, Melanie Potok in there talking, um, signing her new book. And I thought that was really cool that they had these incredibly well-respected authors that they were featuring for book signings. I mean, people that are doing good in our world. And so that was like, I really appreciated that. Um, but then I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Like I had concerns with what I saw being passed for as evidence-based practice at some of the booths. There were booths dedicated to selling um, plastic items that are not evidence-based for um, non-speech oral motor exercises, which ASHA has had published articles in the ASHA leader. And so it's confusing to me. And I'm I'm being you, you see how PC I'm being with my word choice right, um, uh, it's it's confusing and frustrating to me to read the literature, but then to go to the convention hall and see the products for sale. Um, like I just I would have assumed given what, um, what the research tells us that that would not be the case. And so, like, that's just kind of frustrating because I see all these younger, newer clinicians. Um, and, I mean, that was myself years ago. I would have bought that stuff up because it was cute and shiny and bright. But, like, mm, that's 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 disappointing. So, yeah. All right. So those those are a couple of my thoughts. What are you thinking? Um, well, that was my first. This was my first, Asha. So it was very overwhelming. Yeah. Wait, what? I didn't know this was your first one. Holy crap. Yeah, it really it's is when it's your first one. Okay. Um, I think that, well, like you said, it's very difficult to parse apart the, especially being a new clinician, like what is, what you should implement into your own practice and what is just kind of bright and shiny and new because mm -hmm. there, I mean, because people can just come up with these products without necessarily having research to back it up. And or they could have research, but they could be the ones, only ones doing the research on it. And we all know that that can sometimes lead to things being very biased. Um, mm. I mean, I'm a little different in that I question pretty much everything. But I know that there's a lot yes. of people that don't do that. We're kind of look at the resources through a little bit of rose colored glasses because you know, we want solutions. We want answers. I mean, I def there were a ton of like booths talking about like, like vital stims, a brand, but talking about like having neuromuscular. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, we both, there's just not a ton of research on that for pediatrics. Yeah. So that was like there, but there was a lot on that there were there's a lot of things too that are newer and so um i think they just haven't had the opportunity to have more research on it like what's the um the tape that people have been trying to use yeah kinesio taping kinesio taping you know that's something i have kinesio taping the the thought process behind it is that it's supposed to cue and activate and and we've got the research in the pt world mm -hmm. 
but uh, I haven't seen enough of the research in the peds world. And that's something that I would find fascinating. Um, So if somebody's out there listening and has the research to share, please, please send it to Aaron and I, but like, but yeah, that's something that I feel like if you're not trained, right, you could, um, we could tape the wrong way. Or what about kiddos that are, um, this is hypothetically, I have a little guy whose um, uh, buccinator is attached um, in the wrong place. And so for him, if you're going to go through and do taping, I would assume we would need to activate uh, different parts because uh, when he chews his, um, <laughs> um, uh, his eye moves with his mastication patterns. So, yeah. One of my favorite things about the exhibit hall is um, I love some of the ASHA booths, especially the ASHA advocacy booth. Did you go back? Did you go back there? Okay. One, I love that they have the cute. I did. I did. I dragged you there because they have the fun things that you can like play with. And I enjoy that part. But they have the current um, their what ASHA is advocating for through their um, uh Oh, not it's it's ASHA advocacy, but I can't remember what their cute little acronym is. But they talk about the bills that they're advocating for, the bills that they're trying to stop, the collaboration efforts, the um, scope of practice encroachment that they're working on. And then they tell you and teach you how you can sign up so that way you can get those pre-populated advocacy forms sent directly to your email uh, so that when something is really alarming and we need to step it up as a profession and protect our uh, license, our rights and our patient safety. It's right there. And I thought that that's one of my favorite parts because it teaches you how to be an SLP activist and we need that. I'm sorry. I was really excited about that one. (laughs) No, I like that. It's like an opportunity too to meet meet these people that have been advocating and kind of talk to them about your niche of what you need advocacy for to get more aid in that. Because I think, I mean, it's just when you meet someone in person, it's just, we're communication specialists. We know that that's more helpful and more meaningful. And I think helps to build that bridge. Okay. So there's one, there was one exhibit or one section in there that doesn't have that much to do with evolution of evidence-based practice, but, um, the caring square, I love going to the caring square every year. And, uh, this year they had, um, they had, they, they had all different options. It was like a variety. So we got to make the uh, ornaments for our vets. And there was, oh, what were those things? You know, those glass bead jars where you like flip them up, sensory jars. They had sensory jars for a local uh, school that primarily serves aut- children with autism spectrum disorders. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, it was definitely sticky, definitely super messy. But I love that with 14,000 people in attendance, we're putting good out in the world. And so that was also, it's really relaxing to color. So just to kind of take a break from all the humans and the foot traffic and chill, that's delightful. Um, And then one fabulous takeaway from the convention center this year for my immediate practice, like the tiny humans that we work with, uh, Dr. Riva she had the savory snacks back in the back um, near the taco stand and she was fantastic. And y'all, we have Dr. Riva coming on in February, but uh, they're crackers that actually meet the crackers and the puree meet the IDSI level five and IDSI level six guidelines that are shelf stable and have actually been researched and not just by her, but by like, there's a big clinical trial going on in Canada um, over her, like for her crackers. And it's the first product out there that when you bite into the cracker, it actually dissolves. It's not like these baby crackers that say they do the dissolvability that they don't actually. And that was, I mean, absolutely mind blowing. I was thrilled to find that find. Um, that, 
those. Ooh, and the th- throat scope. Am I saying that word right? I think so. The the light up stick. What yeah, I love trying? those. Yeah. I, I I don't remember ever seeing those before. My supervisor at the hospital when I was in grad school showed me them. And you I, just buy oh, like those I, clear things to replace it. Okay. Yeah. Is, so is can, the is the light bulb in the clear piece? No. So those of you that don't know, it's like shaped like a um, tongue depressor and you have this white piece at the bottom that has the battery in it and the light. And then you have a clear piece that looks like the tongue depressor that you stick in it and it's plastic wrapped. So it's like Jayco safe and all that. And you use a different plastic thing for each patient so that when you do your oral mech, and you like look inside their mouth, it lights their mouth up via the scope. And it's super cool and makes it very helpful. I had never seen that. Or if I have, I don't remember that. So that was absolutely awesome because they were on I Shark mean, with, Tank. They were on sh- what what is Shark Tank? Oh bless it. They were it's a show. <laughs> it's a show where these rich entrepreneurs like people come in with their ideas and then they get to decide if they want to invest in them. So this lady <gasps> made them with on Shark Tank. That's delightful. I want to pitch. I want to pitch a school for individuals with um that have severe and profound needs that need nursing care. I will do the. I need to research into Shark Tank. <laughs> Thank you for making me culturally competent. I appreciate you. You are welcome. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, cool. Fantastic. All right. So then my other big, all right, so we, we've hit some highs. We've hit a couple of those about the, um, about the exhibit hall. And uh, one that I do appreciate is that they do have a significant amount of uh, career opportunities, which is, I mean, are, there's so many job opportunities out there, but sometimes finding your right niche you may not know that there's a an option like that. Um, right. uh, I really, really liked Hope Speaks, uh, where they uh, support uh, uh, individuals. I think it was in Uganda. And they have SLPs go out for like one or two weeks to train folks out there. And then there was uh, one for... I don't remember the total name of it, but they work with, uh, like they live on the Navajo reservations and it's like a year long contract. And I, I just think that's amazing that you're going out onto the reservations and working with native Americans there for a year. And for somebody who's, um, adventurous and, and confident, I thought that was just what an awesome opportunity for that I didn't know existed. So that was, that was pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, I like that part of the career hall. All right. Do you have any other favorites? I don't think so. There were so many. I honestly don't remember half the things that I saw. (laughs) It's cause there's, it's so many, it's a lot of people in. Okay. Well, that that's and that is one thing we'll wrap at the end. I have a thought about all the people, but we'll all hold that one for the end. And Shauna, if you're listening, you are absolutely correct. So yes, all the joys of the peopling. Okay, so you and I both went to some stellar lectures, and we kind of we hit some up together. We divulged and went to different topics. Um, then may or may not have absconded to go ride a couple rides at Disney and then come back, but. Which ones were your top three lectures? Like, what were your top lectures and your takeaway from the top lectures? Um, I went to two of Joan Arvidsson's lectures, and those were awesome. I mean, she did, like, a beginner lecture. <laughs> yeah. She did, like, a beginner lecture that was, like, Anyone, you know, anyone even that has no experience in feeding could have gone there and kind of gotten a general synopsis of what, like, scope of practice of an SLP that works with pediatric dysphagia looks like. But it, I think it was nice to, to understand her framework that she works under. Um, 
And she just had little tidbits of really great knowledge. And, and I think the thing I took from her, I went to her, um, like beginning lecture and then she had a lecture about, um, tube feeding and like introducing PO and working with kids that have tube dependency, different things like that. Um, and in the second lecture, she talked a lot about some different case studies, which were really cool. Um, I think it's also, you know, there were many of the kids that she kind of brought up, they didn't really have a complete solution to yet. It just helped to understand the way that she worked through her problem solving of all of her patients. Um, I think she talked a lot about advocating for her patients. She gave little tidbits on like even documentation. And I think a big thing that she talked a lot about were like swallow studies and how to limit time in swallow studies, what you're really looking for in certain swallow studies. And she just is very, very kind. Like mm-hmm. I, you could tell that she really cares about, I remember we, um, like when we were waiting in line to talk to her afterwards, because of course we're going to wait. We had to get a picture. (laughs) This woman came up to her and she was like, asked her a question and, um, she goes, Oh yeah, you emailed me three years ago about a question. I was like, she remembers someone that emailed her three years ago about a question. She probably gets emails like daily from people. Um, so that was really, really cool to not feel like I'm crazy sometimes in the way that I think about things because everything she said makes sense. She, and my biggest takeaway, cause we went to those together. My biggest takeaway from her was that you have a look at the kid holistically and one system impacts the other systems. So it's not just their suck and their swallow. It's, it's all of the other factors. And I can't remember how somebody phrased it in the audience, but somebody asked a question about when it was appropriate or not appropriate um, for PO. And she made it very clear that um, uh, if a kid was having, um, I'm going to butcher the word because I can never say this word right, correct me, like severe tachypnea. Can you help me adult here? Tachypnea. Tachypnea. Yes. That that's, they're not appropriate for PO. And um, I, I love how, when I look at my notes from her lecture, they make like, they're just random thoughts. Like thyroid cancer is written down, but she was talking about how they're see- actually seeing an increase in thyroid cancer due to, um, the HPV virus. What is that? That was the, such a great in pediatrics and how, you know, then you're looking at having a child with, uh, chemo radiation and those side effects impacting their swallow. That's not something that's prevalent in the world of pediatrics, early interventions or like birth to five or seven. So then you're having to like pull in all of that literature. That's primarily adults, which yeah, that one. Well, she, yeah. I remember her talking about, um, like how did she explain it when she was talking about like thinning kids down? And how you need to change one thing at a time, yes. one dimension at a time in small steps, but that you, you can do that because I think we're so scared to clinically work through like getting them off of thick and liquids. But like her whole point is if you never practice with a thinner liquid, you're not going to be able to just do it in a swallow study. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Because physiologically, they're not going to be used to that drastic change. Yeah. You can't like be going to the gym, lifting five pounds, then all of a sudden get, take a 25 pound and just be able to do it with ease. That makes no sense. (laughs) Or, or think that one day when you're 37 years old, you can just wake up and do three rounds of 10 squats and be fine and walk the next day. (laughs) That does not happen. (laughs) Not that that's happened lately. We're fine. Moving on. Mm. but I mean Mm -hmm. it was nice too to have like she's 
like the goddess of pediatric dysphagia, but she would have case studies where she's like, we still don't know what's going on with this kid. This is where our head is. Like, if you have any advice, that would be helpful. But like, we still don't necessarily know. And I think, I think we have, some people have this complex that we're, you know, we're supposed to figure everything out. In reality, we can't always we do can't. that. Yeah. And, and it's, it is not our, it does not fall within our scope of practice to give diagnoses like that are outside of our scope of practice. Like if I see signs and symptoms of, um, of GERD, or if I see signs and symptoms of shortness of breath, then I can say signs and symptoms of, but I can't diagnose it. And then we have to make the referrals that way we can get the medical team on board. But that's, and, and I've seen some very, um, aggressive clinicians, uh, do that, especially when you've, when you've been at it for a long time, but we, we can't, that's not, that yeah. does not fall within our scope. And that could, I mean, that's, that's an, a licensure issue. So, mm -hmm. but she was, when she was sharing her knowledge, she made it very clear that she works with a lot of people on teams for these patients. Um, I, and I appreciated that because she does a very thorough root cause analysis for every single kid. And you've mm -hmm. got to get the kid to the point of healing. So that was, um, that was great. That was great. Do you have, do you have any other favorites that you hit up? Uh, the Cincinnati children's lecture was my favorite. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, they were so amazing. Okay, so um, the Cincinnati, in case y'all weren't there, the Cincinnati Children's Lecture, uh, they covered aerodigestive um, uh, track, and they have an aerodigestive and esophageal center. Dun, dun, dun. How cool is that? Oh, my goodness. I thought that was fantastic. Okay, so what did, what did you love about this one? Well, they had um, a speech pathologist and ENT and a registered dietitian all kind of talking about their role in the clinic. Um, it's kind of like going to a lecture like that. You're kind of like, this is so amazing, but like, this isn't real life. Like this is I'm, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, everybody can, listening is like, yes. <laughs> like they literally, like the ENT, the pulmonologist and the GI all go in at the exact same time. And each while they're doing the scope, they call it, they have a special name for it, but like triple scope. I wrote it down. Yes. Oh, that sounds less special than I thought, but they, yeah. So they have the flexible bronchoscopy, um, they have the they do the EGD and then they do um, the bronchoscopy flexible something bronch, else. Micro, yeah. I can't read my handwriting. Flexible bronch. Oh, reading glasses. Much better. Micro laryngoscopy Lesscopy and bronchoscopy and esophageal. The EGD. However yeah, you say that. It's one. a bias. The EGD. Um, yeah. And so they all like look at it together so that when they go and give recommendations, it's a con like a consensus between the three of them. Um, I think they talked about all the different tests that they do and it was super interesting, just more information than I've learned about like just different diagnoses. Um, especially when it comes to, like the microbiome of like your GI system, just different. There were a lot of really interesting diagnoses that like, I mean, they're going to see them because people come from everywhere to go there. Yeah. But it was like just the way that they all work together um, is pretty amazing. And I think they also talked about, which is really cool. I didn't realize that like the blended diet was like started there. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot that they said that. Oh, yeah. The registered dietitian went through that mm -hmm. in depth. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, yeah. So, basically, she would start giving them recs on, like, blending real food to help them, especially, I think, help them tolerate it more so. Yeah. Um, it was called PBGT. 
puree yes. by puree by G tube. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You use the base formula, thicken it, add fats. She was like, people get mad about adding olive oil and canola oil. I add olive oil. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> she said it's so, um, so very blase. Like it's not a big deal. Um, Okay, but we all right, two thoughts on the scopes. When you were talking about the triple scope, this is how they explained it. If you go see an ENT, you're looking at one thing. And if you go see GI, they're looking at one thing. And it and it, it if you go see a pulmonologist, then they're looking at one factor, right? And depending on the scopes, if you're using a rigid scope, Okay. So when, let me backtrack when the patient lays down and they've got them laying down, everything falls, uh, to the point of gravity, right? If they go to do a rigid scope, when they do a rigid scope, when they actually pull the jaw, um, forward to get the scope to pass through, they explain that it actually moves, uh, your, your V limb and all of this into a different position. So they can't actually, check for, um, they don't get a a good understanding on like how actually enlarged the adenoids are. What does the larynx actually look like at a point of rest? Because it, it automatically moves the tissue structures from their normal baseline just so that they can get the rigid scope to pass through versus if they do a flexible scope, then they're more likely to see the, um, all of the anatomy in its natural state during rest which is really critical because if you go to an ENT because you've got signs and symptoms of laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, and obstructive sleep apnea, but then you go see a pulmonologist and it's actually something farther down and one of them were to do surgery in isolation, it could have negative impacts on the things downstream, for lack of a better phrase. So that was, but when they go in and all three of them are there together, that yeah, that was really cool. How do we replicate that everywhere? Yeah. I don't hmm. know. <laughs> <laughs> We're both like immediately defeated. Yeah, but that was, that was, and that ENT was such a cool guy. He was really kind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, they also had something um, that they suggested. They suggested CT scans of chest instead of x-rays. Uh, like period to rule mm-hmm. out micro aspiration and that word that I always butcher where it's like constant micro aspiration, like building up into the airways. But they said that CT scans are incredibly more accurate. They don't even do chest x-rays, which I Well, they also, wasn't it Joan Arvidsson that said in their clinic, um, they've developed a program where I think if they aspirate, they have to do get a CT, chest CT, something like that. Um, like it's a policy. Mm-hmm. I think I don't. I don't remember her saying that, but I don't. I don't remember two thirds of what she said because I was also kind of Twitter pated that she was just standing in the same room. Yeah, it's their so, CT scan dysplasia protocol. <laughs> to monitor their pulmonary status if they have like a history of aspiration, which is cool. That's really smart. <sighs> I, I just thinking about seeing her, my hand still wants to shake. <laughs> so like, Okay. And then the Cincinnati children's one, they talked about, um, and I can't remember how to say this word either skintography skin photography i think yeah and they I use don't know, I saying it wrong yeah yeah they use um uh tectium 99 and it actually shows up what's it what did i say here in the scintography chest scans tectium 99 and it's it's a nuclear test and uh what they do is they put this uh element in the kids cheeks it's like a little liquid and they just put it right inside their like um, buccal sucli right there on the sides. And as the kid uh, swallows, they can actually see where it goes and it glows. So when they go to do the chest x-ray, 
if it's in the chest as opposed to in the stomach, it shows up. And I thought that was, I had never heard of this test. And I thought that mm-hmm. was fantastic because, and it, it, it goes over a period of time. So they can see like, you know, is it like immediate aspiration or is there like delayed aspiration? But I thought that right. was I thought that was really cool. So, because I mean, home health, we don't get to see all the bells and whistle options out there. And so that's why folks, that's why going to these lectures is important because then you can, you know, learn about it. Right. Now, did you go to the esophageal one? No, that was you. Okay. Well, I know, you know, it was you, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I sat with Steph. I was like, I was like, I was sitting with somebody because I was eating a muffin and I was like, oh, esophageal dysphagia, cool. But then I was like, like I had to put the giant muffin away because it was so awesome. Um, and I got really, really excited. Okay. So I learned a couple of new words that I had also not heard of. Um, the esophageal one, hold on one second. I, I, did you download the ASHA app to kind of keep your courses straight? Mm-hmm. I did that one. Um, welcome to South of the UES Esophageal Dysphagia by jo- Joy Gazzino, University of South Florida, and Stephanie Watts from University of South Florida. And it was fantastic. And they were talking, their their whole pitch was, hey, what you're seeing may present as an oral dysphagia, but we have got to do our due diligence and include the uh, going all the way down to the esophagus into the stomach. And they broke it down into two separate issues with the esophagus. It was either a motility or a structural issue in the esophagus. Um, Mm -hmm. And motility like peristalsis or sphincter relaxation and uh, structural would be intrinsic or extrinsic. Um, And then they had this really fantastic thing called a jackhammer esophagus. Um, which I hadn't, have you ever heard of a jackhammer esophagus? Mm-mm. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to pull a picker, picture up because jackhammer esophagus, jackhammer. Oh, I can't spell jackhammer esophagus. Okay. So with a jackhammer esophagus, it's, um, hyper contraction, uh, of the esophagus. It's like severe spasms and, uh, it, you know, requires some treatment, but the pictures, the images that they showed were absolutely mind boggling. And they were like, these are the people that take like multiple swallows in order to get the food down, or they just, you know, like the kiddos that just don't want to eat. But then when they go in and they actually, um, uh, do the, the, the barium swallow studies and they scan it all the way down. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly uncomfortable. But if you think about it, these kiddos, we, they can't convey what it is. I mean, often they can't verbally convey how they're feeling. And I was like, oh my goodness. And it's, it's pretty rare. I mean, the, the prevalence was really, um, it falls in the rare diseases category, but it was enough that I immediately wrote it down and was like, all right, cool. We need, add that to our list of worries. So yes, make sure that you're pitching everybody to go in and take a peek at the esophagus. Now we've said it before, but we'll say it again. Technically scanning the esophagus should be included in the modified barium swallow study. That is according to the radiology association. If it's not done at your local facility, please reach out and um, try to have an open form of communication to get that included. Because if we're only looking at the oral and pharyngeal stages, we're missing action items downstream. Uh, so just tuck it away in the back of your mind, motility or structural issues with the esophagus. Um, now there was, uh, there was one lecture that I went to that, um, I didn't really enjoy. Um, uh, um, hardly that much. And I was really disappointed. It was by, um, uh, a bigger, um, hospital system and, uh, they were going through all these different case studies and missing in all the case studies was the social outreach, psychological, um, support systems and community supports. Everything was done within the health system. 
but there was limited outreach presented that the health system did with the um, home health practitioners. And the three examples that they gave, um, the kids were failing. And then they kind of used and presented reaching out to the home-based supports as like a means of the last resort. And um, it highlighted, uh, and I'm, I'm being PC here, um, it highlighted kind of one of the things that we don't always talk about. Uh, I I remember thinking when I worked in the hospitals that I was a total hotshot man. I had it. I had the hospital gig. It's as good as it's going to get. This is this is living the dream, right? And I actually looked down my nose at like anybody who didn't want to work in the hospitals. I mean, like maybe they just couldn't hack it. Like it's an ego trip. And I get that. Like been there, done that. But at the same time, I'm on this side of it. And so, and I'm on this side of it. And I've also had a very interesting life walk um, from the Michelle that was Michelle 10, 15 years ago, right? But I firmly believe that we have to immediately take into account PTSD for our parents of children that were NICU or PICU and sustained trauma, whether it be delivery complications, um, uh, just going back and forth to for NICU stays. There is research about there out there about PTSD in parents for NICU survivors and um, postpartum depression. And I firmly believe that if we are not addressing the family caregiver parents' well-being, we are not going to be able to establish buy-in to get these families to even take their children to the follow-up appointments or to take them to treatment regularly. And that's one thing that if you're in the world of home health, you have the opportunity to do that because you're there with them on like, you're there in their home. So you're seeing a patient and their loved ones in a completely different, very intimate light. And I really think that we should, as soon as we have a concern, bring it up with the physician, either the um, pediatrician or whoever made the referral, and get the supports in place. Um, because that was the end result of the case studies that were presented, hey, we should we should do this. But like, I think we should actually start there uh, as opposed to several months down the line when we're missing developmental windows. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what, what are you thinking? You got quiet on me, woman. <laughs> no, I'm just listening. I agree. Yeah. But that's mm -hmm. that's just. Yeah. I feel I felt very very strongly about that one. Um, well, I think it's I think it's very easy to like blame the parents for certain things. Um, I think also when you work in the hospital setting, or if you're inpatient, or you only see them for like a clinic every once in a while, like you don't really understand what's going on. So not only is it important to like get the resources two families, but it's also really important to communicate with the people that are seeing them every week. Yes. Because they have a better idea of like what's going on, not just like with the patient, but with the family. Um, you know, I feel like there are some instances where kids come in with failure to thrive to hospitals and, you know, parents can kind of get the blame, mm -hmm. but also, you know, it, it's going to be a lot easier for a child to gain weight in a setting where they're on a strict schedule and there's no other factors involved and no other appointments and no other kids. And there's people that can check on them, you know, consistently even more so than, you know, more people than just the parent. Um, so I think that can be hard sometimes. You, I love the support when you got a kid that you're really that worried about in the home health world. We all know how long it can take to make a referral happen. 
I mean, it could take mm-hmm. weeks and months. And sometimes um, our our sweet friend, Leslie, she and I were troubleshooting um, cases, all HIPAA compliant, but I mean, troubleshooting cases. And she was saying how she did a swallow study on a kid, an outpatient, and the kid aspirated every single consistency, um, the worst she'd ever seen. And she ended up being unable to reach any of the referring providers and was stuck in a, this kid's not safe for any PO. And, uh, the, you know, it was, it was very interesting to watch, uh, her position of like, well, what can I do? And so I think the end game was, you know, they encouraged the family to go to the emergency room, uh, to be, you know, to seek admission. However, the family chose not to because their doctor never informed them, but they couldn't reach the the referral source, you know? And so mm-hmm. I thought, and, and the kiddo did end up getting um, placed inpatient, but I mean, as soon as they got inpatient and they got, you know, G-tube and treatment and everything, all the ball, balls rolling, like that's, that's when I need you. That's when we, those of us in the home health world need the inpatient and vice versa, because we can explain to y'all, Hey, this is what was going on. This is the reality. And, uh, sometimes the picture painted at home, it's not as clean. It's not as sanitary. I've had physicians choose to do a G tube as opposed to a trial in G tube. When I've conveyed the conditions of the home and been concerned, Hey, if this NG tube comes out and they, a family attempts to put it back in at home, it's not the most sanitary location. Um, and, and that's, but I mean, that's the reality, but Y'all have, when the kiddo's inpatient, you have all the fun bells and whistles there to do the diagnoses and to do the, I'm not sorry, diagnoses, but to get the referrals and, and to get the, the tests lined up. And that's, that's phenomenal. But it was just, I think my biggest takeaway that it was just that there was a breakdown in communication between the different providers. And I was surprised given the source of the information. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, um, yeah. Awkward turtle transition. I will just move it along. Um, okay. So one of the other ones that I really, really, really enjoyed, um, it was, um, hold on. I'm opening up my app because I don't want to say the wrong name. Um, it was dun, dun, dun. Oh, I had to change the day. Uh, not CHOA. It was not CHOA. Nationwide. Nationwide. Thank you. It was nationwide. Flow testing, spoon testing, fort testing. Oh, my. A pediatric institution's approach to IDSI. Y'all, Melanie and Colleen, and they did a fantastic job presenting. And there was a bunch of other people that supported that didn't actually go. Kimberly, Shelley, Jessica, and Malia. But uh, please know that Melanie and Colleen absolutely rocked it. And they went through and they talked about, all right, so we're all supposed to be doing ITSI, but what does ITSI actually look like in our facility and how easy was it to implement? And in a nutshell, it was it was good, bad, and ugly, and they're still working on the kinks. But I appreciated that they were so honest, candid about it. And they gave uh, one of their uh, best explanations was that they have some really great chefs in their kitchen. And so the chefs, when they're like trying to create like a con- straight consistency, like it always comes to this consistency, the chefs may not always follow the recipe because when they're taste testing it, it might need a little more salt. It might need a little bit more broth. It might, because t- they're going at it from a, um, a taste perspective and not necessarily a viscosity perspective. Um, but they did, they talked about all of the education and the open dialogue that they had, and they came up with a recipe book for the chefs and all the kitchen staff to follow. And they worked really closely with the chefs in the creation of the recipe book. And I still think y'all should sell the cookbook, the recipe book as like a fundraiser, because I would buy that. That would be absolutely phenomenal. But it was, it was nice to see the trials and tribulations. And they were like, with some aspects we've, we've met it. Um, and other aspects were continuing to work on it. 
um, especially with the liquids, with getting nursing on board, with not letting the liquids sit for an extended period of time or how quickly they can do the flow test. Because the flow test, I mean, having to do a flow test for every single patient every single time, that is time consuming, but it's best practice. And so it was, um, that was just, I, I really did enjoy that one. Uh, so well done, y'all, y'all, y'all rocked it. Um, yes. So it, they're a work in progress. I appreciated the honesty of that one. Okay. So w- mm-hmm. were there any other ones that you hit up that we haven't covered that you wanted to highlight? I don't think so. All right. I'm going through my little um, flow sheet. Um, feeding therapy, not just a gut feeling. Uh, from St. Mary's Hospital, that one was really good. Um, shout out to St. Mary's. Okay, so I'll do I'll do me. Um, I gave one at the very end of the day, at the very conclusion of ASHA, which was terrifying because everybody was emotionally, physically spent. So uh, takeaway for adding to your evidence-based triangle, um, when you go, one, if you have a passion, chase it, follow it, make a pitch, apply to do the presentation. And two, um, if you're presenting at the very end of the week, please know that everybody is exhausted as you are. And so five o'clock on a Saturday night, <laughs> one of my friends was like, who'd you make mad? They gave you the five o'clock spot. I was like, I'm a nobody. I got the to close out the convention. Um, I highly recommend that maybe you bring candy to like energize uh, your audience and maybe throw candy bars at them that I, in retrospect, would have loved to have done that. But uh, from a speaker's perspective, I... I love questions. I love questions that ask me for my resources, just like you do. Like you always ask the perfect question, Erin, and you time it just right. And I appreciate that because if we're up there and somebody's up there and they're presenting, you should always be able to use independent thinking skills and fact check it and and go check out their resources. So that's, that's a biggie. Um, and, mm-hmm. and make sure that when, um, folks make sure that when you're accessing the articles online, we have to, from the speakers per side, and I didn't know that until I did that this year, we have to upload our slides that are HIPAA compliant and we're supposed to upload our references as well. That doesn't always happen. Uh, and sometimes there's technical glitches. So you can actually reach out to ASHA and say, hey, I have a concern. I couldn't get their references. And they will follow up with the speaker to get those uploaded. So that way, when you go through the ASHA app, uh, you can you can still access it, um, which I, I mean, like I'm on there right now and it's been almost three months and I can still access my handouts. And so if there's a question that you have, um, go back and, and, and delve into the data, data way. But, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how was your recovery time after Asha? Were you as exhausted as I was? Like I came home and slept for like basically two days. It felt like. I was very exhausted, <laughs> but also you talked to way more people than I talked to. <laughs> like we would be walking and I, I counted within like an hour span, you saw 18 people that you knew. Yeah, because that's okay. So there's there's our Shauna moment. Shauna, there it is. One of the greatest takeaways from Asha is seeing your colleagues because you meet these people. You, you, you go into the um, you eventually when you're and when you want to advocate, you're going to fall in love with your state association. You're going to want to start advocating there. And then you're going to run into people for um, CSAP, the Council State Association Presidents, or uh, if you're in one of the leadership development programs. And there's so many different leadership. There's uh, the Minority Student um, Leadership Development Program. There's the STEP Mentoring Program. There's You see all these people and it's really fun to network and catch up and and support each other because y'all if you've had a bad day and struggled with something some one of your colleagues has also had that moment um oh and the Asha Foundation I do um 
one of the great things about going to ASHA for me is going to the ASHA Foundation event. And I try to go every year if I can afford the cost. But uh, this year it was fantastic. They had uh, a private uh, dinner area overlooking the water. Um, Aaron, I don't know which which Disney park we were at, but it's they shoot fireworks off and it's over the Epcot. Epcot. Okay, thank you. I knew you would know. Um, mm-hmm. And the money from those events go directly to uh, research. They go directly to scholarships for students. And I think they gave away, I'm going to misquote this, but I think it was something like a hundred to $200,000 in scholarships. And that's fantastic. I think that was like in a year alone. And so, yeah, that's, that to me, yes, I'm going to go have a cocktail, giggle with girlfriends and enjoy crab dip. Right. But at the same time, I, my ticket is supporting evidence-based practice because that money is going to go to fund a student who's going to change our profession. And that's cool. So, um, I really, really do enjoy going to those, but, um, did you, you ran into, you ran into your old classmates, right? Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's see. And when you're that far apart, I mean, good Lord, you've been all up and down the Eastern seaboard since the start of undergrad. So like, that's awesome. It's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So any final takeaway, friends, before we have to wrap up and close over to questions? I don't think so. I think we covered most of it. Yeah, I think so. Bring water, hydration. Take a page out of the friends. Pack for snacks. Bring water. Probably, yeah, snacks are helpful. Snacks, because the food's there. It's expensive. Snacks, water. Download the app before you go. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I, I think I think that that is I think that's a wrap. Okay, so um, we are folks. We are coming up on a pretty big event here in South Carolina uh, on Valentine's Day, February thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth of twenty twenty. We have the annual Skisha Convention at the Columbia Metropolitan Center, and uh, it's 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 our tiny version of asha and it's not nearly fourteen thousand people so if you also get overwhelmed by large crowds then come on down to the little old cola town and uh wine dine eat your way through the city and have fun um nerding out we we have some pretty amazing uh speakers this year uh i'm i'm pretty excited deborah brooks from slp's wine and cheese will be presenting and we have craig coleman uh, Craig Coleman is, um, he's an ASHA VP board of directors. He's presenting on stuttering. Uh, Deborah Brooks is presenting on, uh, early childhood language acquisition. We have, and I'm going to butcher his name, Chris, um, B-U-G-A-J, Chris Bugai. Uh, he's really large in the AAC world. He'll be here presenting Marie Ireland, who is also on the ASHA VP board. She's presenting on public schools. And I mean, that's, that's pretty fantastic. We have some national names. Oh, and Dr. Faye Murray, who I adore, is coming to talk on uh, bilingual evaluations. And she's uh, past president from over in Arizona and also clinical faculty over there. So uh, be sure to check us out. And last pitch, uh, Nevada Speech Hearing Association is kicking it and doing an amazing job this year. So I just have to give a shout out to Shauna and her um, partners in Mischief and Mayhem over in Nevada. Uh, so keep up the good work, y'all. And uh, hold tight. And I want to switch us over to questions. Aaron and I want to start with a really big heartfelt first bite Thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half. And we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. 
So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCore subscription. That's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. All right. So we are going to have one dynamite lecture called The Case for ARFID Being a Pediatric Feeding Disorder on Friday, January 24th at 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time presented by Dr. Richard Knoll, MD, PhD. And in that session, he's going to review the consensus definition for pediatric feeding disorders, how it establishes the framework for diagnosis, care, and research that accommodates feeding problems and disturbances in children, including avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And, and this has been a hot button topic in the world of pediatric feeding and swallowing. So please join me on Friday, January 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Feeding Matters online amazing conference. And I am so excited to um, see y'all virtually there. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I am your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.